Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Fantastic. We all in. If anybody, well, actually, you might want to move forward after the testimonies because you might get a numbum. <laughs> so, first of all, I would like to welcome Tom. So, can you give Tom a massive round of applause? <laughs> Normally, I would stay up here, but Tom and the others have got long testimonies because they just want to tell the whole story. So, Tom's fine with me sitting down, aren't you, Tom? And I'll come back afterwards. So, here you go. Thank you, Julie. Um, good morning. <laughs> um, my name's Tom. Some of you uh, may know me, some of you don't. Um, I've been coming to Riverside ever since I attended the Alpha course earlier this year in June. Um, on the 21st of June, I gave my life to Christ. And the journey that, le- <laughs> uh, the journey that led me there was a, a long one and a very interesting one and, and one that was kind of wrought with a load of different struggles and stuff. Um, I grew up down the road in Herne Bay. I had a you know, relatively normal childhood. Uh, my mum's side of the family is from Cyprus, and as a result, I was baptised uh, Greek Orthodox. Um, I'd attend church with my grandparents as a child, sitting there listening to a sermon in a language I didn't understand, um, and occasionally I'd be told to walk around the church with a candle or a font. So, you know, that was, that was kind of my first kind of uh, introduction into religion. <laughs> At the age of three, I attended my sister's christening at the same church. Um, and when the priest went to dip her into the font, I ran up to him and kicked him straight in the shins. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, assaulting anyone is, is not a good thing to do, but assaulting a priest was frowned upon quite severely. Um, we lived comfortably as kids. You know, I had, a, I had a good childhood. My brothers, my sister and I, we grew up. We never really wanted for anything. But as a child, I was very hyperactive. I used to run around the house on my baby walker, chasing my mum and dad, always going for their shins, weirdly. Um, and they used to have to jump onto the uh, worktops to get, get away from me. I attended the local infant and junior school down the road from my house. Um, and actually, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed my early school life. Uh, reports always said the same thing. Tom's smart, but needs to apply himself as normally normally what happened in the reports. At the age of five or six, I couldn't identify the feelings I had in my head, but in hindsight, I looked back and I realised I was a very anxious child. Even though I enjoyed a lot of things, I was anxious and I was scared, but nevertheless, I didn't actually have anything to be scared about. After junior school, I went to high school, and this is kind of really where the story starts, and the anxiousness and the fear that I felt as a child was amplified. I was desperate to fit in, to be liked, to be popular. I think we all are in some respects when when we're that age. And by the age of 13, I'd started smoking and I was part of a a relatively large social group. Some of us would have called us goths. We prefer the term grungers. By this age, I'd started experimenting with friends with alcohol and because I was one of the only people who looked old enough to drink, I pretty much had the same on a Friday and a Saturday night and I'd go in with a a pocket full of money and an order and I'd I'd buy alcohol for pretty much everyone in my social group. This made me feel fantastic because I felt like I had friends. You know, and looking back, I realised that those friends were merely acquaintances. They were people who were using me for the stuff I could give them. They had hung around with me purely because I could buy booze and cigarettes in increasing amounts and every Friday and Saturday night we'd spend basically the entire night down at Herne Bay Seafront just trying to escape reality by downing bottles of cheap cider. While most of the people in my social group did manage to keep their drinking habits to the weekend, um, one of, well, some of us, myself included, started drinking during the week. Uh, one of the people I drank with introduced me to marijuana a lot long before my 14th birthday. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I loved alcohol, but when I first smoked marijuana, I felt that life's worries seemed to drift away. Unfortunately, that first joint sparked a 10-year chain of events that took me down to a very, very low place. And in my desperate attempt to fit in and be accepted and be liked, I drank and I smoked and I smoked weed and I sold weed and I was the man who could get whatever you wanted. I spent most of my GCSE years at school in a, in a kind of semi-drink, drug-induced stupor. 
Three weeks before my GCSEs, I was suspended. Thought that was fantastic. Got another two weeks off school. And the first day of my suspension, I walked downstairs to the fridge at 10 o'clock in the morning and opened a can of beer, the first of that two-week suspension. And that was probably where I realised it was all starting to go wrong. I flunked every exam, other than two. Weirdly, religious education and English. Everything else, I failed. (laughs) Um, after I'd ruined every single exam other than those two, there was a, a little bit of the mature me that decided to enrol in college. Um, and I was there for a couple of years, never really was sure of what I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up on a lot of courses. And because I was on a lot of courses, I ended up with a lot of friends. So I had a drinking buddy for pretty much every single day of the week. Um, I still smoked weed. And, you know, I still drunk. But I got bored of everything because I, it just made me feel lethargic. And I kind of wanted to feel the other way. Um, so at a party one night, when I was probably, say, 18, 19, I tried amphetamines for the first time. Um, when I did that, I felt like I was invincible, and I felt like nothing could ever stop me. Um, and that's how I felt for about 18 hours until the blistering come down came, you know, and it was the complete opposite. So the problem with amphetamines and other stimulant-based drugs is you feel fantastic, but that feeling is, is only a very temporary feeling. After that, you basically feel the exact opposite for a hell of a lot longer. And my new love of amphetamines and hard drugs continued through college, and somehow I managed to get into university, so it continued through there as well. And my priorities flitted between trying to get a good education and trying to stay as high as possible for as often as possible. Friday nights were no longer a night for drinking. They were rather the start of a four-day bender. And I'd often miss Mondays or Tuesdays lectures. Sometimes I'd miss Wednesdays, depending on how hard I'd gone at the weekend. And during that first year of university, in an effort to cover up um, my drug use, I I moved out of my family home. You know, my parents knew something was up. They always somehow know. And during one of those regular four-day benders, I took cocaine for the first time. And this was really the beginning of the end. Whilst everything else made me feel fantastic, this really made me feel fantastic. And I'd felt like I'd really made it to the party. I felt like I was the best person in the world. And I could have been standing in front of you and I would have thought that I was the best person here. And as it was incredibly expensive, I just kind of stopped using everything during the week. I thought, no, we'll limit this to the weekends. And, you know, as an addict's brain does, I felt justified. I was doing well at university at the time. I thought I could spend uh, you know, my weekends doing what I wanted. <laughs> and before long, Friday and Saturday night started becoming Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And then Monday. And then Tuesday. I ended up using cocaine every single night of the week. And every single student loan I had, every bit of money I had, every bursary, every pound I had, went on my addiction. In the first term of my second year, unable to balance the fine act of being a student and a drug addict, no longer a functional drug addict, uh, I dropped out of university. And I remember sitting in the tiny room I rented in the early hours of most mornings, wondering where it had all gone wrong. I was about 21 at this point, and after a particularly bad three-day bender and an onset of psychosis caused by a cocaine overdose... I sat there and I wrote my suicide note and I took an overdose of over-the-counter and prescription pills. Now, I don't know much about what happened next, but I do remember being pulled out of a field by some police dogs and then throwing up violently in Margate accident and emergency. I felt broken. You know, I was done. I'd I'd taken myself to a new low. And after I was released from hospital, I I moved back in with my parents and I made a a commitment to stay clean. (laughs) And this worked for a bit. You know, I attended 12-step groups and... I made a conscious effort to better myself. But it never really lasted long. I'd have three months, six months, nine months a year clean, but I'd always go back to something. Now, the problem with drugs sometimes isn't the drugs itself, but it's the culture that surrounds the drugs. And during my time as a cocaine addict, I'd become a cocaine dealer. And this had led me into a very murky underworld that it was difficult to break out of. I took part in stuff I'm not proud of. I took part in organised beatings. I mixed with some of the worst people I've ever met and I was involved in more than one police raid. Strangely enough, I always managed to get away and I never, ever got caught. During this time of kind of limited clean time, I found a partner and that managed to motivate me to stay off drugs for a while. Even though I wasn't using cocaine, I was pretty much cross-addicted to anything else I could find. The addictive personality was still very much there. 
I started gambling heavily, and about 18 months into my relationship, I'd literally spent every penny I had. I'd taken out payday loans with every single payday lender I could find, and then took out a consolidation loan to pay them all back. And I spent the consolidation loan on blackjack. And one night whilst at work, my fiancé told my parents about the situation I was in, and I was told I had to leave. So there I was, emotionally and spiritually broken once again. I had nothing, and I owed thousands of, loan, uh, thousands of pounds to loan companies and bailiffs. And several months before this event, I'd started praying every morning when I got in from work, and my prayers often sounded like this. Dear God, if you're real, then please let me win the lottery so I can pay off this debt. If you do this, I'll know you're real, and I'll believe in you. Um, about a month later, I went bankrupt. <laughs> Funnily enough, God didn't help me win the lottery, but what he did do was put me in a Christian rehabilitation centre just outside of Birmingham. Oh, I spent three months here doing a very strict routine of work, daily devotionals and Bible studies. Um, I hated myself, you know, I, I hated everyone around me and I, and, I, and I was bitter. I was bitter at God and I thought, why would God let me be in this place? <coughs> um, after three months in um, the rehab facility, I returned to Kent and my family took me back in. I went to church sporadically and I started praying infrequently. I was clean, I looked better than I ever had, but something was missing in my life. I started working, and that wasn't it. I tried several hobbies, and again, that wasn't it. And a colleague of mine, an incredibly wise man from the Philippines, once told me that I had a God-shaped hole, and that I wouldn't feel complete until I gave my life to Christ. I started reading the Bible, but I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't particularly want to know how to read it. My prayers changed from asking God to help help me win the lottery to asking God just to help me get through another day. I started an Alpha course, although I stopped going after the first session. My journey with Christ was sporadic. I'd given my life to Christ whilst in rehab, but I felt no better for it. This period of sporadic journeying continued for several years. Uh, Earlier this year, I googled the Alpha course again and saw that Riverside was running one. Um, I don't know why, but this time I felt different. I felt happy to be here. The questions that I thought were stupid uh, were received warmly and without judgment, and the videos and the discussions were full of the information. The last stumbling block to me giving my life fully to Christ was myself. I needed to forgive myself for everything I had done to myself and others. One night after the Alpha course, I went home and prayed, and I let God know that I was done fighting, and from now on he can do whatever he likes, because I was done. And after I said that prayer, I felt different to how I felt before. I didn't have a miraculous salvation where the ceiling opened up and a light shone for it, but I felt like something. Years fighting, and I'd finally given up and surrendered. I never thought I'd be standing here today at the front of a church before my baptism. It's a miracle I'm actually standing here today at all. I managed to make it through my years of active addiction without getting arrested and without dying, although I've lost many friends along the way who were victims of their own addictions. I could have gone that way. It could have been me instead of them. A good friend of mine died two years ago, and she died alone, and she was 27. It's by the grace of God that I'm able to stand here today and talk to all of you, and this is something I will always be thankful for. The gifts and blessings I've received cannot be measured. I have a fantastic relationship with my family. I'm training to start a new career, and for the first time in my life, I'm actually happy. I no longer have that underlying fear following me around all the time. I've made an effort to strengthen my walk with Christ, and although this is something I still find difficult, I know how I have the support should I want it. I strongly recommend the Alpha course for anyone who has questions or just wants to know more. Um, I know there's one that's going to be running uh, in the new year. If anyone out there is struggling with an addiction or something related to one, then please come free to come and talk to me. Uh, please feel free. Uh, I don't profess to have all the answers, but I've, um, I've been there, and with God's help, I made it back out again. Um, and just so uh, Keely gets her little mention, uh, in February of this year, Uh, Before I attended the Alpha course, I was sitting in a tattoo parlour in Dover with a friend who was getting a very intricate tattoo done. And she turned to me and she said, Tom, you should get a tattoo. And I went, yeah, fine, no idea what I was going to get. So I told the guy doing the tattooing that I wanted a red question mark. 
And I ended up with the alpha symbol <laughs> tattooed on my arm several months before I attended the alpha course. Um, thank you very much for listening and God bless. Isn't that incredible? Thank you for your raw honesty, Tom. It's just, well, it's just incredible to see. Just to be a little part of Tom's journey has just been such a blessing. And I know lots of people know our small group and our alpha group. It was a joy um, to just see that transformation. And the alpha symbol was hilarious. I think in the first couple of weeks, you know, one of us noticed it. And it was like, Tom, what's that on your arm? And he hadn't made the connection, had you? And it was just so funny that God tattooed him with with the alpha symbol when he didn't have a clue. And that was where he finally found Jesus. So thank you so much, Tom. That's beautiful. I'm going to welcome Mark and Joe now. Let's give them a warm welcome. Mark's isn't as long and that's absolutely fine. We haven't all got dramatic stories like that and that's absolutely fine. So I'm going to stay up here with you, Mark, and then I'll right. welcome Joe. All right. Okay. Well, that was an awesome uh, story, Tom, and uh, congratulate you on your journey. Um, I'll give you a brief st- summary of my Christian journey. Um, my dad was in the RAF. Oh, sorry, I'm going to have to keep this. <laughs> my dad was in the RAF, uh, so we moved about quite a bit when I was young, and we were not really a church-grown family. However, I was baptised... My parents did send me to Sunday school, along with my brother and sister. And I have one distinct memory of going to church, specifically when my dad returned from the Falklands War, to thank God that he'd come home safely. Um, Bearing in mind he was on an ammunition ship uh, at the time. Um, If it had been hit, then uh, there wouldn't have been an awful lot left. So he was very... um, when I went to school, oh, sorry, when I left school and started work, I soon settled down. I married, and with two young sons to provide for, I did a lot of shift work and overtime. And I suppose during those years, my interaction with God was minimal. I did get married in church, and I had my sons baptised, but that was it. And after some 16 years or so, the breakdown of the marriage, or after the breakdown of the marriage, I found myself having to rebuild my life. Um, and even though I was at one of the lowest points in my life, I still had no interaction with Jesus. I was essentially just plodding on with life. For Lauren, just before we met, a mutual friend warned me that Joe goes to church, you know. Um, and I pondered over that, and I still wonder now what she was warning me against. Uh, is it infectious? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Needless to say, I ignored the warning, and as I wanted to spend as much time as I could with my new girlfriend, I opted to forsake my Sunday morning lying and join her running the children's activities at church. And thus began my real Christian journey and subsequent trips to Spring Harvest and Big Church Day Out really helped my growth as a Christian. Spring Harvest in particular was an eye-opener for me um, from the Anglican stayed services that I'd been to before. Um, It was a complete opposite and very much like what we have here. Um, And... uh, that that um, that moment in time led to Joe and I putting forward a pro- proposition to our local church to have a in- more informal contemporary service on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, we called this Edgy Church, and t- together with others, we led this for a couple of years. And also during this time, I formally got confirmed with the full um, Anglican service with Bishop and everybody else. Um, which was quite an ordeal, but maybe not quite an ordeal as this, (laughs) so I didn't have to speak. (laughs) When Lauren left school and went to Warwick Uni, Joe and I moved from Plymouth to Oxfordshire. Uh, Joe had managed to get a job at Oxford Brooks University. 
Um, and Joe had also just embarked on a part-time PhD, which you're going to hear about a lot about, I suspect. Uh, despite the best laid plans, we inadvertently got ourselves into quite a bit of a pickle. Um, Work-wise, Jo had ethical issues that resulted in her leaving her job at Oxford Brookes University uh, and faced a commute from Oxfordshire to South East London to work at Greenwich University. Um, we wouldn't have been able to do that uh, without the help of Joe's dad, who helped put her up over those times, and uh, it was quite a quite a difficult time. Also, in the meantime, we had entered into a renovation project on our property, which, at the time of the job change, was already well underway, so we were past the point of no return. Um, suffice to say, it's a very, very long story, so I'll, I'll try and keep it uh, succinct and won't bore you with the details. But we were let down by our architect and a couple of builders, and some dimensional errors the architect resulted in us living through a, a winter with a partial roof off, without hot water or heating, and sleeping in a tent. Um, in order to finish the project, because we uh, lost a fair bit of money during that time, uh, we, I had to undertake most of the work myself. And uh, so with the help of a couple of very generous tradesmen at the end, it was during that time that I felt the enormity and the pressure of the work ahead of me. Um, I know that Joe was thinking, I was actually thinking months and years. Um, I had hope and faith that God was get us through this, and looking back at this time, I can see how God was there for us at our lowest points, and how he always provided for us when we needed it most. We went desperately close to the wire financially, and thankfully we were able to borrow from family, some of who are here today, and we were able to see ourselves through to the finish line. We finally crossed that finish line in 2016 and were able to sell the property. And at the time, Joe changed jobs yet again. So there's three job changes and a PhD that she's done and a house renovation. So um, I don't know who does that. She does. <laughs> Um, we moved to Sea Salter and we bought an old bungalow, which is actually quite ripe for renovation. Uh, <laughs> anyway, some people never learn. In the last few months, uh, we've had a couple of sad family events with the passing of my mum in June and my niece in early September. Uh, we have been comforted by the many prayers said for us and that continue to be said for us. Finally, I have to say that the welcome and subsequent support that we've received at Riverside has been truly exceptional, and our house group has been truly outstanding with a generous, generosity of heartfelt and unconditional friendship that has touched me and Joe deeply. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Joe, give Joe a big welcome. Jo has also got a really raw story, so, you know, lots of smiles and support for her because she wants to tell it, it's important, but it is bearing a soul. Hey, everyone. I'm already feeling a bit tearful, so bear with me. It's not, it's not going to be without tears. Um, so from what Mark said, you can see that neither Mark nor I stand here as new Christians... We've both affirmed our faith through confirmation within the Anglican tradition. But today we stand as Christians with a strengthened faith and a much deepened spiritual awareness. So what's my story? Well, it's hard to know where to start except to say I had a really good start. I'm the eldest of three girls. My sister Denise is sat there. And I'm told that as a child I was talkative, confident, happy, an avid reader of books even back then. We lived in South London, then the Medway towns, and then back to London. My family's circumstances meant that I learnt compassion, to be good, obedient, to help out with my sisters, oftentimes defending them against some rather cruel words that were said to us. 
The boat was not always steady. Um, There was a shadow of parental mental health and family discord. And I did become more reserved socially, and that's something that I've had to deal with through my life. But as a family, we started attending church, and my parents came to know Jesus. I can honestly say my dad has been a steadfast encourager of my faith and a role model. Oh, my goodness. I'm only in the first paragraph. Oh, all my life. Okay. Okay. But sorry, Dad. To be honest, as a teenager, I dutifully attended youth groups at church. It was what my parents expected. But there were cracks in the coherency of my own Christian worldview. A turning point happened when a social worker visiting our home said, you know you'd make a really good social worker. And something stirred inside me. I felt a connection with my compassionate side and a purpose to fight the inequality that I'd experienced in the family. And I left home to study for a social work degree at university and was a Christian. It was at university that I met God for myself, not as someone or something that helped my parents cope or as someone whom, if I was good in life, I might meet sometime in the future in heaven. My new friends chose to follow Jesus, not out of duty or good behavior. And they spoke about God as interfacing with them in a very real live way within their daily lives. I got involved in missional work. That's a whole other story, which I'll tell you about another time, I'm sure. At an altar call at my friend's baptism service, age 21, I could no longer deny God's reality of my new mustard seed size faith. Six months later, I affirmed my faith through Anglican confirmation. Again, I later found out that people had been praying for me to meet Christian friends at university. And boy, am I glad that they did. I wouldn't say that the road was easy or that my personal insecurities did not raise their head at times and cause me great problems with relationships. But I would say that God definitely blessed me with the gift of my daughter, Lauren. I threw everything I had at parenting her. Sorry. She was an absolute lifeline for me. I have no doubt that God knew that and that I would rise to that privilege. It's a privilege to have children, right? And God definitely gives that to us. I stayed in Plymouth for the next 18 years, and I was very involved in providing the youth work at my local church. When I met and married Mark later, as a family, we opted for Christian-based holidays, conferences, and festivals. And looking back, we were putting ourselves in opportune situations for closeness to God, and it was a real time of solidifying my faith. As a registered social worker, I still am, be careful when you talk to me, and later also as a university lecturer in social work, it's been a more controversial position to hold a Christian identity in any way other than completely privately. The social work rhetoric is firmly one of separating out personal values from professional secular values and keeping personal values firmly private. In my work, it can rather feel like being exiled in Babylon. And like many other social workers identifying with a Christian worldview, I regularly, and I mean regularly, experience negative generalized assumptions about my Christian identity. I felt compelled to look at the matter of how social workers could better communicate with Christian parents to understand their worldview, their Christian worldview, than actually absent it or reject it. And I embarked upon it as doctoral study, part-time alongside my full-time lecturing job. I knew that I would need to deepen my theological understanding, and I was totally excited for it. It felt like I was doing something really meaningful for God as a foot soldier to further his kingdom. To complete it, I had to let go of a number of things, so we chose to move, and I changed job to be nearer to London which is where I was undertaking the PhD, and thus began our time in Oxfordshire, and what I think of as the years in the wilderness. 
Looking back, I vastly underestimated the spiritual battleground that I was entering. Stupid, stupid me. (laughs) Moving to the Whitstable area felt like a new beginning. The wind off the sea literally blowing the memory away. And we breathed in new life. We wanted to join a lively, contemporary, relevant church full of evangelical, compassionate purpose and were welcomed by you guys immediately. Our small group, our home group, our family to us. I had a new university job and my employer was committed to seeing me get my doctoral work finished. But within a few months... I began to find something was not right with my finding it hard to string words together. And a lot of the time it felt like I was in a brain fog. It was very frightening, especially given the nature of my lecturing work and my writing. My employer was expecting the study to be finished and written up for publishing. About this time two years ago, standing right here, Mel had a word of knowledge that someone had a problem with their right hand, their writing hand. I don't know if you guys remember that word. But I knew it was a word for me. And Mel prayed with me. And she remembers her words. You were in a right state. I I was. (laughs) I couldn't lose my brain. I was used to being the one paddling away, trying to keep the family going financially. I had to get my doctorate finished. Hadn't we already come through the dark times? My home group put up with me, truly, and prayed with me endlessly. Linda texted me encouragement so many times. And the words she had for me were, for a time such as this, and uh, she kept saying, I don't know why, I don't know why I've got these words, but these are the words I have for you. And Jackie prayed with me loads. And uh, she said she had a picture of me fighting a Goliath crouching down like catless in the Hunger Games and having darts fired at me. And I was beginning to see the battle was not just physical, but spiritual. Nevertheless, the physical symptoms worsened and my sleep was now also affected and my mood was very low. I developed breast lumps and it prompted a hospital visit. I had some tests and my hormones were all over the place. I was experiencing severe perimenopausal symptoms. Also, my cortisol levels were awry. So ditching any pride that I had about my work, I told my managers about the struggle. Funnily enough, the men were great. It must have been scary to face a woman talking about out-of-control female hormones. The women were less understanding, particularly where their experiences of menopause had differed. But right, every woman experiences it differently. And for some women, like me, HRT does not work. And it's not a simple case of taking tablets and get better. I was classified by the consultant doctor as having a disability and requiring reasonable adjustments. I was totally embarrassed but relieved to have the diagnosis. I didn't want to accept that I might not get my doctorate finished. It was for God, right? I had to get it done. But I feared whether it meant that I would not get through my probation period. On a good day, I might write two to three sentences, and that was all. The crunch came when work said they wanted an international-level paper from me, and I cracked. And I had the mental breakdown that I was trying to hold at bay. I was on my knees desperate and mortified at my incapability and I was signed off as incapable to work. Mark walked me to the doctors. He was so worried that I couldn't even drive a car. And God had my complete attention. I could do nothing else but look to him. My eyes truly were fixed on him. Keely and Simon told me to get prayer from wherever and whoever I could, and I did. You poor guys, I don't know, if you haven't had prayer with me, then you're the lucky ones. I went for healing prayer, and I joined the Freedom in Christ course. At the same time, work paid for me to have some counselling that I would never have been able to afford. 
It was an amazing combination. At one end of the week, the counsellor helped me understand how to live with my menopause symptoms, but also how to understand my reaction to it, how being unable to rely on my brain, my intellect, was deeply troubling to me because it had been my coping mechanism from childhood. The stress from the wilderness period in Oxfordshire had caused biological detention, but the brain cells would eventually regrow. At the other end of the week, I would look deeper at these issues from a spiritual angle, understanding how the strongholds had taken hold and praying for God to reveal more to me and address them. I repeated God's promises and and particularly that God had not given me a spirit of fear, but one of love, power and importantly, a sound mind. Having to be still to fix my eyes on God was amazing. I began to have impressions in my mind that would somehow be confirmed by scripture or teaching or Christian friends in the following days or weeks. God felt and feels very close. One image I had was of me in front of huge wooden doors, standing hands clasped under my chin. Another was that I'd been in some kind of cave with God not away from me but with me but hiding in some way. The most key moment was when we went to wildfires and Pete Hughes' teaching about breakdown. He spoke about how often it is that on the threshold of any great breakthrough, there is a time of severe breakdown, a time when you're on your knees at the very end of things. It's spoken about again and again in the Bible, experienced by many like Elijah, Moses, King David, and even the great defenders of the faith like Luther, Bath, and Martin Luther King. Was this me? Was I in front of the doors, in a cave, as if at a threshold of breakthrough? So this is where I am today. I'm testifying about the breakthrough. Praise God I've finished the doctoral thesis. But let me be clear, it is for his glory and only because of his glory. For I know for sure that I would never have achieved it without his power. I would never, ever have done it under my own steam. It was impossible. I had no brain. I learned how much we should be aware of the battle of principalities and powers. Doing kingdom work opens you up to the battlefield in a very forceful way. To fight Goliaths requires preparation. And like King David, you have to have successfully defeated the lions and tigers that are in your closet before you face a spiritual Goliath. Ultimately, though this was God's gift to me, was a revelation of how he is intimately interested and interwoven in my life. A deepened spiritual sense of how real he is. It was a painful lesson. It cost me my brain and it cost me my mind and my pride, but I am so grateful. And so it feels obedient to mark this pivotal moment of deepened awareness and relationship. And this is why I stand here today. So I'm aware that I'm talking about mental health issues. And I know, because I've prayed about this, that there are people here that this resonates with. Most people experience mental health breakdown at some point. Um, it's, it's normal and it's okay. And as Mark intimated in our family, we've had some very distressing, more recent times of my niece who took her life from mental health issues. Um, and she didn't talk about it. So talk to us and, and, and make use of these people here. Thank you. Isn't that incredible? It's just so wonderful to hear testimonies of real, raw lives changed. And I'm sure that many of you can resonate with stuff that Tom's maybe shared and Mark and Joe too. So please talk to somebody today. If you're in that place where you're thinking, my life feels like I can't go on or I've got stuff in my life that you know I resonate with, Jesus is the answer. And these guys today have testified to that that Jesus is the person, the very real person in their life that has brought them through. 
and has made them be able to stand here today um, in victory. I'm sure many of you have been so moved today. We could all have just cried through all of that. But thank you so much for being so real and inspiring to all of us. So we're going to get on with baptising them now. If you do want to move to sit on the floor, you can. You can stand up. You can crowd round. Um, Tom's going to go first and with uh, Martin and Simon's going to baptise. And then Mark and then Joe. Right then, I am going to welcome Simon very quickly. You don't know how intimidating it is getting up in front of you guys, for me every week. No. Um, for the guys getting baptised, they're going to be sharing their story. So I want you to be massively encouraging, yeah? Okay, lots of big smiles, no grimaces, no frowns, no shaking of heads. So um, they're going to share their story, which is... Uh, the incredible thing is we've each got a story, haven't we? We've got a powerful story that's ours. It's uniquely ours. And uh, when, we, um, when we do the baptism preparation, we talk about the power of story and the fact that your story is unique to you. And we talked about the story uh, of the man last week who was, who was blind, but actually his sight was restored. And uh, he, he refused to change his story, even under intense scrutiny from the Pharisees. Uh, the threat of being kicked out of the, um, of the community, out of the religious establishment, effectively kicked out the church. And uh, he refused to change his story. He just said, this man called Jesus came and put mud on my eyes. And I went to this pool and washed. And now I can see. And that was a story that he stuck to. So we're going to hear the story of how these guys have encountered Jesus. Uh, and then we're going we're gonna to baptize them. But first, let's just look at this whole thing about baptism. We've been doing this series called Simply Jesus over the past few weeks. Trying to get back to the essence of who Jesus is. Trying to sort of cut through the religiosity, trying to cut through maybe some of our preconceptions about who he was and to get back to the essence of who Jesus was as a person and why he did what he did and who he was. Well, just before his ministry began, a man appeared and uh, I've got a picture there. This is the best picture I could find of John the Baptist. I think it's probably the closest we're going to get to imagining what this, this wild man might have looked. And repentance, as we said before, all, all repent means, it means literally to turn around and go in the opposite direction. It's from the Greek word metanoia. It means literally to change your mind on something. So literally, John went out into the wilderness and he got into this river Jordan and he called people to come out to him who wanted to go in a different direction, wanted to repent, to change the direction of their lives, to go away from their own direction and to turn back to the direction of God. And that's what he called people to. And to symbolize this, he took them out into the river and he plunged them into it. Now, we tend to go backwards today. We tend to go down very graciously and come back up again. He might have even just shoved people under. We don't know. You know but literally, he, he plunged them into the Jordan. He, he completely dunked them, got them completely soaking wet to symbolize something that they wanted to do. It was an outward sign of an inward choice they'd made. They'd chosen to repent. They'd chosen to turn their lives around. And he pushed them under the water and brought them up again to symbolize that act. He said something strange. He said this, I, after me comes one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It turns out John was just a warm-up act. He was like a signpost that was pointing to something, someone who was greater than his ministry of repentance. Someone would come who would do a more profound transforming work than just a symbolic washing in the Jordan. John's call to baptism was quite radical. You had to go out into the wilderness. You had to trek out there to meet him. This wild, smelly man who ate locusts and dressed in camel hair. And you had to wade out into the middle of a river, dirty river. And you had to get dunked. And that was all fairly full on. But then this man came called Jesus. And he had a much more radical call. And these were the words that he said. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, they will save it. And in a sense, baptism is a picture. It's a narrative. It's a story of everything that everyone goes through if they choose to come to Jesus and accept him. We start by losing our lives when we go under the water. We choose to deny ourselves. We choose to put someone else in charge. Just as John the Baptist said, someone's going to come who's more powerful than I, 
when we choose to get baptized, when we choose to follow Jesus, we recognize that someone is more powerful than me. Someone is more powerful than you. And that person is the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we encounter that person, we recognize actually there's someone greater around in this world than me. Because most of us live sort of personality-centric lives, don't we? Most of us are the center of our own universe. But when we meet Jesus, we recognize someone more powerful is in play. And if we come to him graciously and receive him, receive his invitation, then we say, actually, Jesus, you're now in the driving seat. You're now in charge. I'm going to submit myself to you because you have a better plan for my life than I do. And we invite him to change our identity and we invite him to give us new purpose. So we deny ourselves. And then the Apostle Paul says we're buried with Christ in baptism. So this is a burial today. When these guys go under the water, we're literally burying them. Not for long, but we are burying them. They disappear from view. They're hidden from us momentarily under the waters. Jesus went to the cross for us, didn't he? He suffered on the cross. He died on the cross for you and I. So we could, we sang this morning, he made a way where there was no way back to God. He made a way for us through the cross back to relationship with the Father. And we don't have to have that death because he had that death for us. But when we are baptized, we symbolically enter into that death with him. We join with him in death momentarily as we disappear beneath those waters and we're buried with Christ. We're buried with him. And we take with us all our stuff, all our bad choices, all our bad habits, our bad thoughts, our bad actions, and we bury them in the water and we leave them there. I say, you need to go and talk to that guy who's buried in the pool. You need to go and talk to that guy because that's the guy you want to talk to because that's where all my stuff is. It's buried in Christ, in those waters. And so we enter this burial with Jesus. But then we get raised up. Resurrection life. We bring these guys back out of the water. And normally they're smiling. (laughs) We bring them back out. He represents resurrection life. We bring them back into resurrection life. Jesus was raised on the third day, wasn't he? He was raised on the third day to resurrection life. And Tom and Mark and Joe today are all going to symbolically be raised into resurrection life. They're going to come out of this water and it's going to symbolize a new life for them. There's nothing magical in there. No bubble bath. Just just reasonably warm. We haven't blessed it. We haven't prayed over it. It's just ordinary Whitstable tap water. But it symbolizes resurrection life. They deny themselves. They're buried and they're raised to new life. And they have a new life in Christ. They have a new life on this earth, and they have a new life with God forever because of the work of the cross. Amen? And the great thing is, guys, because Jesus died a death for us, death no longer has mastery over you and I if we follow this path of Jesus. The thing that we most dread losing is our life, isn't it? Yes? But Jesus said, actually, if you lose that in me, you will find it forever. The very thing that you think you're going to lose actually will be secured in me forever. Because baptism is a symbol of death and new resurrection life in Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead and he cannot die again. He cannot die again. And when we follow Christ on this curve of denying ourselves, buried with him, and raised to resurrection life, we cannot die again because we live in Christ. So in a moment, Tom and Joe and Mark are going to make that journey. They're going to tell their story and then they're going to symbolically be buried in that pool and raised to resurrection life. They're going to confess their faith in Christ. They're going to tell their story. And you're going to hear personally of how they've connected with the living God. And if you're here today as a friend or a visitor and you haven't got your own faith, I'd really listen intently to their story. Because their story points us all to the living God. It points us to the truth of the gospel. And I've had the privilege, we were chatting, Martin and I were getting changed in the back. He said, how many of these have you done? And I've lost count of how many people I've baptized. But every single person has a unique story. A unique story of how they encountered the living God. So powerful. So precious. So you might have been baptized yourself today. 
And if, if you have in the past, I encourage you to recommit yourself to God today. Use this as an opportunity. Think about your baptism day. Think about the day. Think about what happened, who was there. And think about that choice you made to deny yourself, to be buried in Christ, and to be raised to resurrection life. And maybe pray a prayer. Say, God, you know, what do you want for my life going forward? Jesus, what do you want me to do? How can I follow you more closely? You might be someone who's following Jesus but hasn't yet made the choice to get baptized. I encourage you to do it, to make that step of obedience. Jesus went to John and he himself was baptized. And John said, why on earth are you here? You don't need to repent. And he said, I'm going to do this to validate baptism. The words he used, I'm going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And he did it to validate John's baptism and to validate baptism for us. If you've not been baptized personally, I'd encourage you to come and chat to us. Come and chat to the guys after they've been baptized today. Yes, they're nervous, but this is an amazing milestone in their life, and they will never forget it. Being baptized won't make you a follower of Jesus, but it's a step along the way. It's a step of obedience, and it will build up your faith and encourage you. I want to encourage you again today that Jesus didn't come for religious people. He didn't come for, 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 for religious people. He came for everyone. He came for the whole earth. There's a promise in the Bible. It says this, the promise is for you and your children, all who are near and all who are far off. So the promise of new life in Christ is for everyone. It's for everyone. It's not exclusive to a certain people group. It's for everyone. And so if you're thinking about him today, the invitation to you is to come to him and find your new life. And if you accept that invitation, the very thing you fear about losing most, your life, you will find it in Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at WhitRiverside.